First, a sincere apology to all of you back there. I mean, if I, I don't know what to do, I would prefer to go up there to speak on the street or what. I mean, I, it's like, objectively, we are constrained. I'm sorry. It's not my nature to play these games. And neither is Jack's. I'm grateful to Jack. You know, it's objective conditions, how should I put it, no? Okay, let me begin since, as usual, wait a minute, I will take uh, this out to measure the time because I'm afraid that I have too many things to say, so I will try to watch your body language when you get tired. Let me begin with a simple observation of the difference between United States and Europe. You know how in Europe we count in a different way the floors. You start with one here, no? When you enter the house, it's one. In Europe, it's ground floor, we call it, no? And then you go up. Like, first floor for us is you already climb up, no? Okay. Now, it's easy to say that we Europeans are more grounded. We have a ground. You don't have a ground. We are groundless. You just <laughs> go up. But maybe you are more right here, because the price we pay, we Europeans, is that we believe in the ground more than you. You know where you can also feel this. Maybe another jump, another feature, which will bring me also to this groundlessness of the symbolic order, which is I noticed another difference in hotels if they are higher than 12 floors. Here in the States, you cheat mostly. You don't have a 13th floor. You know, it's 12, 14. But from my naive European approach, like, I ask myself, but whom are you cheating? Every idiot or God observer knows that 14 is really 13, no? <laughs> like, whom are you cheating? Again, <clears throat> no ground. But maybe you are here in this groundlessness closer to what Lacan aimed at when he talked about the inexistence of the big other. The big other symbolic order doesn't exist. One of the ways to approach this inexistence of the big other would be jokes. Jokes in the sense of, I think, what is so uh, mysterious for me about jokes. Did you notice a strange feature about jokes, which is that, first, they are, of course, the idiosyncrasy, creativity of language. But at the same time, they are totally objectified in the sense that it's count against the nature of joke of jokes to say now I will produce or invent a joke. joke. A joke is somehow always already here. You say, did you hear that joke? You tell jokes. I mean, you know what I mean? Jokes just pop up out of nowhere. You can, which is why one of the nicest paranoiac fantasies that I know, it's in an early, <coughs> sorry, Isaac Asimov story, Jokester, where I think this is maybe the ultimate paranoiac dream, the dream of what Lacan calls the other of the other, as if it would have been possible to discover the primordial author of jokes. This is maybe the most consistent atheist definition of God. And the hypothesis of this story is that precisely this one, that a group of linguists develop a hypothesis that concerns the passage from 
animals, apes, their language, or beasts, whatever, you know, their language is, can be very complex, but it functions at the level of pure designation. No, like, you know, all those beasts who dance, it means so much here and there, and there is are flowers, uh, honey, whatever. But how do you pass from here to human language? The idea is through a joke. And animals can't tell jokes. They can pass information very well, not jokes. So the idea is precisely that this is how God instilled that divine spark into humanity, by telling them a joke. They already had language, humans, which was kind of an ape-like or beast, whatever, signals you add a joke. Of course, one can even play the game of that we know which is this joke, I think. The closest that comes is the one of do not eat from the tree of knowledge, no, which clearly has the structure of the joke, it's exact opposite. But what I'm saying is that <clears throat> precisely this idea of the author of a joke behind, underlying it, is the, maybe the ultimate figure of the big other. Okay, another approach to this fragility, groundlessness of the big other would be the paradoxical status of belief. Uh, I claim that belief is something very fragile in the sense that when you believe in something, you don't really believe it in the sense of you really think that in reality it is like this. And I claim this goes even, maybe even especially for Profound, sincere, however you, innermost, however you qualify them, religious beliefs. I claim that if a religious person were to experience something like God appearing to him, now, okay, you are right, I exist, it would be a total breakdown for him, much worse than for an atheist. Uh, I think that the structure here is effectively like that of Marx Brothers, you know, that famous, this man looks, acts like an idiot, that this man looks... And acts as if he believes, but this shouldn't deceive you, he really believes. That's, that's a very difficult position. This is the position of an idiot, which is why to get at this gap, which is always in belief. Uh, did, you, uh, did you see, maybe it's ten years ago, even more, 92, the film with Steve Martin, Leap of Faith, where again it's a con artist, preacher who performs miracles which are all manipulated and so on, healing people, and then once he, what he thought it's just his usual trick, shocked, he discovers that he really produced a miracle, and he instantly breaks down. I mean, he escapes, simply cannot stand it. In other words, I claim that there we have a kind of almost symmetric reversal. Atheism is the secret inner conviction of believers. I think that almost every believer that I've spoken says, okay, I have my inner doubts, but what reassures me is the external ritual. Like, you know, as if you put it into the ritual so you don't really have to believe. What's more interesting is that most of my atheists, uh, incidentally, this is why Umberto Eco was right when he wrote in a recent commentary, I quote him, I frequently met scientists who, outside their own narrow discipline, <coughs> are superstitious to such an extent that it sometimes seems to me that to be a rigorous unbeliever today, you have to be a philosopher or perhaps a priest. Absolutely, but on the other hand, it's quite similar, I claim, with, uh, with uh, 
atheists, all my, literally all, maybe, okay, I don't do it, maybe some others uh, don't, but the big majority, you know, haha, atheists, then absolutely the first thing they do in the newspaper, they read horoscope or whatever, and they laugh and so on, but you need it. So, uh, again, <clears throat> the relationship is much more uh, ambiguous, precise here. To quote again Isaac Asimov in another story, he has a nice point when he says there are two possibilities. Either we are alone in the universe, there is nobody, or there is something, aliens, God, or what. He claims something very simple, which I think is deeply true. He claims both facts, both situations are totally unbearable to us. We cannot accept it would be a nightmare. We would break down if aliens or God would really visit us. But also we cannot accept it that there is nobody there. So we have to dwell in this strange in-between of a belief which somehow is afraid to take itself seriously. You know that uh, uh, theologists like to point out this fact, which is also uh, uh, accepted by Lacan, that we are naturally believers. Like, it's very difficult to be a true atheist. Really, a radical atheist. But I think the least one can add to it is that, uh, is that it's also impossible, as Kierkegaard knew very well, to be a believer, to really believe it. To be a believer, I would like to find a believer who, when God would appear to him, really who wouldn't break down, who wouldn't break down. I think belief is, moves in a kind of a suspended status, like you accept it, but somehow you know it has a certain virtual status that it's not really true. Uh, now, what has this to do with the topic of neighbor and so on, what I want to talk today? Uh, let me give you already one topic, one domain where we can nicely apply this fragile status of belief. Ecology. I claim that uh, it's precisely this belief which does not, we do not take seriously, but nonetheless accept it as our background, this about even, which is the ultimate cause of catastrophe. Namely, okay, all leftist writers, critics, uh, protest all the time, like, why don't we do something about global warming and so on? My God, we know enough. Now, those who try to account for this usually say either A, okay, but we cannot really be sure, it's more complex, we don't even know, is it really global warming, are we responsible for it? <clears throat> or more, a more leftist paranoia version, no? Uh, that it's the big uh, multinational companies who are responsible for pollution and who pay all these scientists to, to inseminate doubt and so on. No, I think it's something else. I think that we know, but we are not ready to believe. It violates too much our substantial beliefs. In what sense? Imagine yourself. You read a report and you know. It's not that you don't know. You know global warming and so on. But then, you know, you look out, you see sun, flowers, and so on, and I claim we are, as it were, biologically wired to eat. You cannot really accept that this will disappear, because our being itself disappears with it. We cannot do it. In order to do it, this would be for me uh, a definition of freedom. Free would be a human person, a true atheist, who can who is ready to make this step. And uh, 
at least one guy did it. It's a crazy text. Mao Zedong in 55, in his famous text, the Chinese people, why the Chinese people shouldn't be afraid of the American atom bomb. Namely, uh, what does he say this? What's his argument? The usual argument is, of course, the well-known one, which is usually uh, remembered, this kind of a cynical wisdom. Oh, fuck it, we are one billion Chinese, the Americans can bomb half a billion, there will still be half a billion remaining. <laughs> but that's not Mao's point. Look how, I quote it now literally, look how it goes on. But even if the United States atom bombs were so powerful that when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the earth or even blow the earth up, that would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole. So it might be a minor event for the solar system. It's a totally crazy position. Like, where is he talking from? Don't be afraid because so what it is for the, for the entire universe and so on. I claim that this is this totally crazy position where you are ready to put, as it were, everything at risk is the true radical position. So why am I, am I emphasizing this? Because, <clears throat> you know, the usual story that we hear, which is what is ultimately responsible for global warming and so on for our ecological deadlocks are is the kind of technological alienation. You know, the story goes usually like this. We, at least in the West, are so bent towards, directed on, on, uh, on uh, technological exploitation, scientific technological universe, that we forget, tend to forget that the ultimate, most radical dimension and foundation of our being is this embeddedness in a certain life world. This is, for example, most clearly developed in, with that uh, Heideggerian, California Heideggerian, Hubert Dreyfus, knowing his interpretation, reading of Sein und Zeit, uh, being in the world. The idea being, we should never forget that all these dreams of uh, computer language and so on, artificial intelligence, forget something, how our mind is not just brain in the world, it works as in interaction, as embedded in a certain life world irreducibly linked to that one. It's a position mind, mind engaged in the world. We cannot abstract from it. I, I'm tempted to say, unfortunately, because I'm tempted to say this precisely is why we cannot take, for example, global warming, warning, uh, warming seriously. I claim that the situation is much more tragical. It's not simply science which is to blame. In order to truly confront global warming, we have really to, as it were, cut off the links are somehow at least rationally problematized. It's our most, if you want, organic embeddedness. We should do something which is maybe impossible to do that, my preferred theologist Chesterton proposed. He noticed a gap between poetry, poetic universe, and scientific results. Like how, even if scientifically we know something to be not true, our poetry remains at the level of naive perception. Like, we know today that there is really no sunset. I mean, what really happens is that the earth makes a quarter of whatever more of a turn. It's the earth which moves, not sun, not sunset. But still, we use that in a poetry. And then Chesterton had a wonderful idea that the true task of poets today 
is to try and develop poetry at the level of this scientific result, so that he uses this simple but I like it example that a true love letter should be not oh my darling let's meet at sunset but oh my darling let's meet at the last quarter of the turn of the earth or something <laughs> like this you know to change that would be this I claim is needed <clears throat> in other words it is truly difficult to be an atheist although there are many versions of atheism Peter Sloterdijk who is a right winger but nonetheless I respect him made in one of his last books a wonderful remark on how every atheism bears the mark of the religion out of which it grew, through its negation. To give you some examples, isn't it true that when you read Spinoza or Freud, sorry if this sounds anti-Semitic, it's just my bad taste, but you can smell the Jew in it. <laughs> you know, even if they are obviously like Freud atheists, it's so obviously a Jewish atheism, an atheism against the background embedded in the Jewish universe. Let's go on. Take Heidegger, Being and Time. No wonder he, before writing it, formally stepped out of the Catholic Church, because I claim, and Simon Zeit, whatever you think about it, being a time, it is one of the great atheist books, maybe one of the most radical. But it's so clearly a Protestant atheism. Because, you know, all these topics of decision, alone, guilt, anxiety, and so on, absolutely no place in Catholicism for this. It's Protestant atheism. Then, for some, there is definitely a Catholic athe atheism, different versions even. This kind of a conservative, authoritarian Catholic atheism, I mean, it's almost a kind of obscene official ideology of Catholics that, like, uh, they have a little bit of this, also Catholics, what most of my Jewish friends told me the same story about their experience, how usually sometime in their adolescence they stopped to believe or become aware of it, so they approached their rabbi and told him, listen, I have a problem, I don't believe in God. And at least so I was told, the reply of the rabbi was always the same. Are you crazy? I am a rabbi. I have nothing to do with God. I'm telling you about the rules and so on. What you believe has nothing to do with Judaism. That's your private matter. Don't bother me with it and so on. No? <laughs> Catholics have even more of this often. You know, this kind of a church is an organization. Like, obey pray, and so on. What you think is your private matter. Don't bother me with it. So we have it, or we have a more Franciscan Catholicism. For example, somebody who certainly would consider himself uh, an atheist, uh, Negri and Hart, both. They are both so, such clear Catholic atheists. No wonder that this is their past. Do you know that Hart told me that before becoming a theorist in his late puberty, he wanted to be a monk. But not just this jokish dream. He did already the appropriate things and so on. Even Islam, they have a long tradition, very nice of the, I was now told, of their own atheism. They even have a very nice word for atheist, something like, if you literally translate it, those who believe in nothing. It's a very nice term. Uh, so, uh, I claim that Nonetheless, at the most radical level, Christianity is an exception here, as such, at its most radical. In what sense? In all other religions, as Chesterton pointed out, uh, in all other religions, 
people also do not, there are atheists, people who do not believe in God. Only in Christianity, that's Chesterton's beautiful reading, God himself, of course he refers to Christ at the cross, Father, why have you abandoned me? God himself for a moment becomes atheist. That is to say this dimension, this void is inscribed into is inscribed directly into God himself. And I think there is something of it already in the Judeo-Christian tradition itself. This idea of imperfect God, which you find, for example, in a wonderful Jewish story from, uh, from I think it's from uh, Kabbalah, the famous dispute uh, between Rabbi Eliezer and some Mishnik sages about some theological point. What happens then is that they have a debate and one of those who is losing the argument said, wait a minute, let's call God himself. And God comes and then another guy says, basically, but I don't simplify very much, says, wait a minute, this is an old stupid man who screwed up creation. We are here among, among learned men this guy doesn't have any right even to debate here. And the surprise is that God accepts. He says, oh, sorry, you are right. Sorry for interfering. <laughs> there is something in, in, in Judeo-Christian tradition about it. What is the underlying message? Ah, now maybe more interesting things to you. And surprise, surprise, being here, out of my attitude to Jack, I will even give a hint, if I am able to, as far as I understand it, about visual arts here. No? <laughs> What is materialism? You know, very simple, you all know it, let me just recapitulate. You know what is the principle of uncertainty in quantum physics? No, you cannot measure uh, the, the velocity and the position of a particle at the same time, at the same point. Now, you know what's so problematic here. It's not that you cannot measure it. It's not just your epistemological limitation. It's in the radical Copenhagen interpretation version, it's an ontological limitation. That is to say, it's not that a particle really has a position and a velocity, but we just cannot measure both. It is that, how should I put it, reality is in itself undetermined. In the sense of, if you get too close to things, you don't find some fundamental units, things get fuzzy, as if disappeared into nothingness. Now, let me make a jump to another topic, but it's connected. You will see immediately the link. That's my whole point. Having a small kid and trying to corrupt him so that I can do some work, I am deeply involved in PCCD-ROM games and so on, all this stuff and so on. So what shocked me there so much is this, how the universe we are dealing in there is an ontologically imperfect universe. You know in what sense? How, for example... You are immersed into digital reality there. But let us say a war. You shoot, you look for the enemy, you see there a house. But we know that the inside of the house is not programmed. Because it's not part of the game for you to enter the house. Or there is a person you kill, but when you kill the person, it's just a splash. But you cannot cut the person and see the bones, blood, inside flesh. Because, again, it's not programmed. Sometimes... It even is a little bit scary for me, like with these newer games which have a, this close-up function, you can approach it. But then when you approach it too much, 
you see something pretty horrifying that all of a sudden that faces are not real faces, you know. They turn into just abstract contours and it's pretty horrifying, as if approaching you too much and see you are not human. You know what I mean? Something monstrous emerges. Now, I hope you got my point, which is some theologists in a beautiful way, I love this theory, along the same lines of limitation, stupidity of God, proposed this reading. <clears throat> what if the ultimate lesson of quantum physics is that we should read reality like this kind of a computer game? So, to cut a long story short, what if, in the, in the same way that in a computer game you don't program the inside of the house because it's not part of the game, you cannot enter it, I mean, if it is just a house in the background, of course, there are houses which you can enter, that in the same way, to cut a long story short, sh uh, short God uh, underestimated us, or to quote your <laughs> beloved president, misunderestimated us. <laughs> so that uh, God thought, you got, God had to program the universe for us human beings. So he thought, fuck it, why should I take care to constitute it all the way down, where humans are too stupid. God made an estimation, humans will be able to reach as far as the atoms. Beneath, they will not be able to go, so why bother? Let's leave it fuzzy, undetermined. So we were a little bit too smart for God, no? Progress too much where God was too lazy, you know. It's as if when you feel cheated, for example, imagine you buy a house with a garden. Then you go back and see it's not a garden, it's just uh, gra not even grass. Then the, the owner says to you, oh, sorry, I thought you would be so t too tired, you wouldn't even go back. No, it's something like this. Now you will tell me, but wait a minute, but I have got here a subject who imagines. Ah, that would be for me, materialism. Isn't it possible, this is the true materialist task, for me at least, to imagine this imperfectness of reality? You get close to it, it's not fully constituted. It gets fuzzy. It just dissolves into nothing. Like in a film, did you see it? I think it's poetically better than Matrix. Did you see, sorry, I forgot who is the director, even the actors, more modest, 13th floor. Basically the same as Matrix fantasy, no? <clears throat> the point is the guy learns reality in which we are is a... Digital reality, but then they tell him if you go, I don't know, maybe you can correct me if you saw it, somewhere in Nevada, New Mexico, where, that if you go there, you literally reach the end. And it's a wonderful scene for me. The guy goes there, walks in a canyon, and all of a sudden he sees Earth is no longer Earth, just flat. Then slowly it passes into this purely abstract digital coordinates. Now it's kind of the end of reality. He meets that fuzzy point. So my point is, that would be the true materialism, to think again this unfinished character of reality as unfinished in itself. You don't need God to imagine it. Reality can in itself be in this sense unfinished. So, what has this to do with painting? I claim in a very primitive way that, this is my very primitive approach, that, the, that when you approach too much, the image is that Again, you just see stains, patches, it's no longer full reality. And I claim that, that maybe this would be one of the functions of the modernist break. That this, that it, uh, how to put it, uh, it, it's a radical, you know, we all know that 
with, with, with modernist painting, uh, reality, even if the painting is realist, like in the case of people like Edward Hopper or Munch and so on, nonetheless, reality, as it were, loses its transparency in the sense that the medium is reflected, not in this primitive sense of you see the materiality. It's a much more mysterious, let's call it spiritual materiality. But you somehow feel the stains, and okay, I will repeat it to make it clear, although I make this point again and again in my books, like <clears throat> very primitive example, so well known, I'm ashamed to mention it, but look at the late Van Gogh's, you know, that sun or uh, uh, yellow sun, excessively yellow, or blue sky, excessively blue. Isn't it that when you look at it, in abstract way, sky blue is light. You perceive it as void. If you look at Van Gogh painting, it has a certain strange massivity, the void itself. But be careful. It's very mysterious massivity because, of course, it's not the massivity of the realistically depicted object. But it's also not the massivity simply of the color itself. It is as if, how should I put it, at the level of the depicted object itself. It's, you know, that's for me modernist painting. It's not the stupidities of, oh, we must be aware that it's only an illusion, so become aware. I think this is the worst of modernism. This, uh, this as if, when I was young, it was a fashionable Marxist argument. I'm still a Marxist, but I don't buy that argument, namely that to fall into the illusion of painting or of a narrative is something bad, you know, like bourgeois fetishism, whatever. So then you get this boring Polo Steer type, by Polo Steer type I mean in his first novel, uh, alienation effects as if, I, I think it was in his first book, First Breakthrough, New York Trilogy, that he has this, you know, a story of a detective, what, and then the phone rings, and then a guy, voice says, hi, here, Polo Steer, I want to intervene. Ooh, what a paradox. We become aware that it's only as if we didn't know it or whatever, no? I don't, I'm not talking, you get my point about that. I'm not talking about this, that you, it's, uh, it is as if, I'm very precise here, it is as if you become aware of this Massivity, pre-representative materiality, which, as it were, from within corrodes the very space of the fiction, of depicted fiction. So it's not just a perceptual limitation. It is not, as they put it, oh, modern painting is subjectivist, it blurs our vision of reality. No, it's, I claim, all up, the more abstract, the more it is ultra-realist painting. In this sense, I draw a conclusion which, we, unfortunately, you and Olga would not agree. My conclusion is reactionary, modernist reactionary. Deep in my heart, I'm still, I must tell you, a high modernist. I think that something happened in music with Schoenberg, in painting, are there are delicacies with Kuhn because I hate Picasso, but uh, that something happened with modernist break and that basically, it's horrible to say, but Postmodernism, I'm more and more convinced, is a regression. You know, like, to put it in Badiou's terms, modernism is an event, postmodernism is not. Okay, I don't have time to develop it, just to make you... <laughs> no, that's a, you know, we don't have time for minor points like the fate of modern painting and so on. Uh, no, what I wanted to say is that to draw attention to Badiou here, this is what Badiou means with his multiplicity. That precisely this... Fuzziness. You know what's his ontology of multiplicity? It is that re, re, multiplicity is fundamental ontological category. This dispersal multiplicity of being, but that's his point. 
you cannot, it's not multiplicity of ones. You never get at atoms. If you divide, subdivide it, it just gets fuzzy, it's void. And that's a, the radical thought. This is where I really appreciate Badiou, because his ontology is an ontology of, how to put it, the opposite of zero is not one, but the primordial fact is multiple in a void, and then one comes after. Multiple is not composed on one, and then you can play this game of let's isolate the fundamental constituents. No, you can go on and on, quanta on and on, and then you get basically vibration of, of nothing or whatever. So, again, I think that this is the true breakthrough of modernism as such. What are, let me go on now, what are the consequences of all this for subjectivity? What kind of subjectivity fits this open universe? Of course, it's an empty subjectivity. We know it from Lacan, but what does this mean? Let me tell you a personal story which I like, uh, because it's obscene, of course. Uh, recently, a publisher asked me to do what I really hate, which is... Uh, you know how books usually have on the back cover information on the writer, which then, with some, especially popular writers, is supplemented by one, two lines about personal idiosyncrasy. You know, like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, John Irving does this, that, that, and then the final lines, he's also wrestler and does gardening and sailing, whatever you want, no? So they asked me, idiots, to do it, no? Granta, I think, did it for that, how to read Lacan. What I did is I proposed them, but, of course, don't be afraid, I don't do this, but I wanted to test them, no? To, to denounce the lie. I put this. In his free time, Professor Zizek likes to serve the Internet for child pornography and teaches his small son to pull legs of living spiders, something like this. You know, like, do it, not... Why? Because I claim that this supplement, which should provide the personal idiosyncrasy, is a fundamental lie. This is maybe even the lie as such. If there is a lesson of psychoanalysis, it is that the core of the subject is, as Freud, Lacan put it after him, the subject is the thing, and that's the neighbor. I'm slowly coming to my topic. Neighbor is a thing. A thing means this impenetrable abyss of the other's desire, and all this wealth of subjectivity, I grow tulips, I kill spiders, and so on and so on. I hate them just, I don't kill them. <laughs> that, uh, all, all this uh, is here to cover things up. Like, at, even, let me tell you, I was afraid to tell it at the other talk <clears throat> there in your public library because it's a sensitive point here among party comrades. I will risk it. Although, to be clear, it's meant in an absolutely respectful way, way to avoid a misunderstanding. Uh, one of the things that I don't like in United 93 is, you know, how they overexploit that motive of uh, what is the last thing people do when you have the last phone call, no? You call your beloved and tell them, oh, I love you, and so on, your wife, husband, children, parents, no? And many people even gave a kind of a Catholic Paulinian twist to it. You see, it's almost empirically proven that when the whole world is falling apart, for you even, everything can become confused, irrelevant, what remains is love. I'm more of a pessimist here. I think, and I can well imagine myself in that position, 
And again, this is no excuse for terrorists. If anything, it's the opposite, if you ask me. If anything, it makes it more sharp. It makes it more horrible what they did. I claim that precisely in that totally desperate, scary position, you lie to yourself. I would probably, you know what I mean? You just try to do something right to, at the moment of that, we like to die with somehow clear accounts to, to, to in good memory and so on and so on. I think at that point you lie. Now comes the ugly experiment, but it's meant in a totally respectful way. You know what would have been a truly atheist crazy thing? To really tell the truth about that point. For example, sorry for the tastelessness, but that's my point. Imagine somebody who, okay, it works only if what I will say now is true. That then, okay, the plane is falling down, you are married. You call your wife, husband, and you say, sorry, darling, now I'm falling down. I will be dead in two minutes, just so that it's clear to tell you the marriage was hell, I wanted to divorce you, bump. That would have been an act. Do that. And I'm absolutely sure that many of the guys who died there were secretly cheating on their wives and so on. But you know what I mean? I'm not saying cheaply, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they were flirting, playing some stupid games. They were terribly desperate and, in this sense, serious. But that's the sad lesson of psychoanalysis. That doesn't exclude <coughs> a lie. What this means is now we reach this, what Lacan calls, decenterment of subjectivity. That when you are at your innermost yourself, you are not yourself, how I put it? You are... You are lying, basically, that you are at a distance from truth. Which is why Lacan uses these words, I will not go into this Millerian topic that you mentioned, symptom, symptom, and so on, no. In this sense, at least for the male subject, it is how I understand Lacan's well-known motto that woman is a symptom of man. It doesn't mean, oh, woman is just my expression, I project into her, or whatever, whatever. It means something much more crazy. Uh, the key point is that for Lacan, the symptom pre-exists what it is a symptom of. This would be for me a beautiful poetic, beautiful poetic vision, for example. If woman is a symptom, to imagine a free woman going around, oh, who wants me as a symptom in search of... Do you want me to be my symptom? Do you want me to be your symptom? No. And there even is a choice, a very authentic one, I claim to choose to remain an empty, pure symptom. This would be something for, I don't know, a nun or whatever, which I think is a totally authentic position. None of the dirty psychoanalytic tricks here, oh, that woman must be frustrated and so on. I think this is false psychoanalysis. It can be a very radical feminine position. I will remain a pure symptom. Woman can do this, men cannot do it. It's men who... It's much more dependent and needs a symptom to be. For example, in Argentina, I was told there is a poet who, in whose poetry there are clear shifts. Like 30 years ago, he was kind of a conservative nationalist. Then, when there were Monteneros, he moved into radical terrorist left. Now he is a new ager. And a friend of this guy told me it's simple. 
he had three mistresses. First a nationalist, then, you know, this is woman as a symptom of men. He was depending on her. He, he did it. In this way, now let me shock you with my bad taste. As they put it, you heard nothing yet. In this sense, I am tempted to re to, to celebrate, to accept, don't kill me, uh, the film, not the novel. The novel is too much even, even for me. Da Vinci Code. Now, I don't buy, of course not, the, the theological aspect. All this, poor Christ uh, has to copulate up there and so on. I think that the best approach to this aspect would be the one developed apropos of X-Files by Darian Leader, the English Lacanian, you know, when he made a wonderful, simple insight. Maybe you know, He says, uh, why does in X-Files, why do so many things happen out there, aliens attacking all the time and so on, no? To cover up the fact that nothing happens here. It's absolutely <laughs> crucial that, remember, there is no sex between David Duchovny and who was Gillian Anderson, no? That's just to, to, to blur up this fundamental fact of the void here. What if we read in this exact way, not as, forget this divine dimension, it's even very vulgar. I mean, it's a humiliation for me that first they promise some terrible discovery which shatters the very foundations of Christianity and then you learn what? That Jesus was making love to Mary Magdalene. I claim that secretly 95% of all Catholics know this and celebrate it. What's the news? If I may be a little bit obscene, if you want the true scandal, I hope at least it will be discovered that I don't know that Mary Magdalene was really a boy or whatever. That would be something, you know. <laughs> not this, no. But it's nonetheless not such a bad novel. Uh, sorry, film. Why? What if you forget about that theological shit and reproach it as a kind of a primitive, simple, but effective psychoanalytic story? Obviously, the girl is Friedrich. It's clear in the novel she is totally desexualized. And the reason is even rendered clear. She witnessed so-called primordial scene. You remember once she returned home when she was young, saw her, that grand-uncle paternal figure in some stupid pagan ritual, whatever. Okay, so the key is the same, I think. Poor Jesus Christ has to copulate to cover up the fact that she doesn't. The same structure. What I like in the film now is that what I was afraid is that it would fall into this Hollywood formula of creating a couple, no? That like, when, you know, this disgusting male chauvinist wisdom, women who don't know, all a woman needs is the right man to shake her up a little bit and, and so on. They avoided this. Again, no sex. It's even a very nice conclusion. You remember what's the solution? She accepts her role as leader of that uh, group, in northern Scotland, Scottish town, I don't know where which, who believe in her. That is to say, I claim it's really a nice film, if you read it this way, about a passage from Eros to Agape, from erotic to political love, political in the sense of community. And I like this very much, that I think it's an authentic solution for a woman. I don't think it, all this shitty psychoanalysis, oh, she must be frustrated, whatever, is false. It's even, although he's an idiot, but here it's good analysis that, you know, his message is not, if you observe, which is difficult, I admit it, Tom Hanks as an analyst, no, it's not, it's not, it's not, oh my God, Frigid, let's do something, and she will do it herself and stop thinking that poor Christ has to do it or whatever, no, no, the film respects this, okay, but let me go now to the main line, so we have this abyss of subjectivity, in the sense of uh, 
openness, and so on. Of course, our elementary reaction to this is fear, especially today when the inexistence of the big other is more marked than ever. Not only the inexistence of the symbolic big other, in the sense of this abyss of language which has no guarantee and so on, but even, I think, what is truly horrifying, if you ask me, in uh, ecology is uh, this kind of, how should I put it, uh, that nature itself as the ultimate big other is disappearing. In what sense? Phenomenologically, what is for us nature? It's some kind of a impenetrable density of our background. But isn't it that the moment you can, through, through, through genome, through biogenetic manipulations, the moment you can intervene in nature, into nature in this way, nature itself turns into something, how to put it, manipulable, reproduced. It's no longer nature in this sense of dense impenetrability. Now you will say, but wait a minute, we can do only a little bit of it. Yes, but the loss is here in the same way as, for example, here I disagree with people who are afraid of all this psychological to radical psychopharmaco manipulations in the sense of if somebody manipulates your your features, your innermost psychic feature, through pills or even through more radical biogenetic manipulations, you, uh, that it deprives you of your freedom. It's much more tragic, I think. Uh, let us say I can change, most primitive example, your mood and so on with serotonin. But if I can do it, doesn't this prove that your previous attitude was not your freedom, but it just depended on a different level of serotonin. You know what I mean? Once you can do it, the innocence is lost. It's not a choice between freedom and unfreedom. It's a choice just between, how to put it, blind dependency and the other kind of dependency. So I think this is the ultimate horror. And sorry, I don't have time to develop. It would be so nice to go into this. This is why I think Chernobyl was so horrible. No, it wasn't a simple catastrophe in nature. The point was that as if the very texture of nature is disintegrated. It's really as if, to go back to that metaphor, we see the stains for a moment. You know, it's not simply a catastrophe within nature. So, again, no wonder that today when the big other is dissolving in all ways, even in politics, the predominant mode of politics is fear. What do I mean by this? Did you notice how not only the right-wingers, but practically across the entire spectrum of positions, if you, we have, let's call it, zero-level politics, politics as expert administration and so on, the only way today, unfortunately, at least in the Western developed countries, to go a little bit up from it, that is to say, to mobilize people into some kind of a passionate movement, is I claim, unfortunately, to mobilize them with reference to some kind of a fear. It can be in a more right-wing mood, uh, fear of immigrants, whatever. It can be fear of ecology. It can be victimization, harassment, again, ecological catastrophes, fear of state, taxation, fear of crime, fear of... Go it's fear which mobilizes us. And this fear, again, is ultimately or, of course, with science, fear of all these technological experiments. The fear here is principally the fear of what will happen with uh, 
This fear, which is, I think, the fundamental fear of modern technology, which is what? It's not only that, that modern science and technology are more powerful. I think that there is a fundamental difference in the sense that previously science nonetheless wanted just to understand, reproduce, and so on. The horror of modern science is that it can produce new forms of monsters. And again, this is not innocent. Like you have, you know, what was still now perceived as monstrosity, all those cows with two heads or whatsoever, all these freaks of nature, now becomes the result. So this is, this fear that things will explode out of control. But I claim, as a Lacanian, that nonetheless, behind all this is fear of the neighbor. And I claim that the big problem today is how to dominate, control this explosive dimension of the neighbor. Now let me slowly approach conclusion, slowly but not too slowly, haha, with a couple of examples. One is, you remember a year ago it was New York Times bestseller, Sam Harris, a book entitled The End of Belief. And very appropriately, this very book also, of course, uh, justifies torture. And it's pretty horrible. But why? Maybe if you read book, you know what it is about. It starts with this simple observation, we all know it, that for most of us, it is much easier to push a button which will kill 10,000 people, 100,000 people out there, you don't see it, than to effectively torture a person here in front of you. Now, Sam Harris' point is that this type of moral, ethical sensitivity is a blind instinctual reaction which is just a remainder of past ecology, uh, evolutionary outdated attitudes. That it's a ecological, sorry, evolutionary remainder which we have to get rid of. He even compares it with the moon illusion. You know, like primitive people think moon is just a small circle up in the sky, now we know it's quite large. In the, in the same type of illusion uh, 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 predominates in our moral life. So he dismisses this very fundamental resistance, disgust at torturing another being as uh, literally. The reasons for this resistance to torture are, I trust, every bit as neurological as those that give rise to the moon illusion. So he nonetheless admits that we have to live with it, and then he proposes, I think, a pretty horrifying uh, 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 solution, a kind of a truth pill, not in the sense that, uh, that I think it was reported these days in the newspapers how scientists try to develop a truth pill, not having to torture, but truth pill which does torture, but kind of a decaffeinated torture. In what sense? His idea is that to develop a pill which subjectively the person who takes the pill would suffer incredibly, but from the outside it would appear that the person just took a nap. And says, he says, wouldn't it be wonderful? You force him to take a pill, the guy takes a nap, awakens, yeah, yeah, I confess everything you want, and so on. No? What's horrible here. Three things. The first one, the most obvious, you know, coffee, yes, but decaf coffee, alcohol-free beer, fat-free cakes, and so on. And now, since I cannot resist vulgarity, I cannot restrain from mentioning an ultra-vulgar vulgar example, the contribution of Venezuela to it. It's not a joke. I read recently, about two months ago, that 
I will not pronounce words they are too vulgar for me, but you know what beans are supposed to give you, so-called winds or whatever. Okay, the claim was that Venezuelan scientists developed a new variety of beans where you don't get winds. So it's wonderful. Now we get decaf coffee with wind-free beans or whatever. And the guy here offers us, again, decaffeinated coffee. It's the same. But there is a much more fundamental dimension here. Why is this reasoning wrong? Because I claim that when Sam Harris talks about this proximity, is the other too close to us or not? This, he is too short there. This proximity is not physical proximity. It's the proximity precisely of the neighbor, who can be too close even if he is far away and so on, you know. That's the definition of the neighbor, that it's, it intrudes. So I claim that this argument only works if the other, our, the other human be our beings are no longer treated as neighbors. They simply become objectivized in this field of calculation where you can say, okay, I torture you here to prevent greater number suffering of them. The dimension of the neighbor gets lost. So, this is, uh, okay, I have here, maybe I shouldn't talk too long because the, what I wanted to develop here is how even our, all our outbursts of violence are ultimately outbursts against the neighbor, the neighbor being not simply the other person in front of us, but the abyss of the other, which can be detected only from our phantasmatic symbolic space and so on and so on, which is why I'm here again following Schlotterdijk in a slightly more pessimist mood. I think that it's easy to praise today's global capitalism or oh, the whole world one big uh, uh, village, we can communicate instantly with each other, but the problem is since we are still neighbors, each of us with, with our own symbolic universe, way of life, way of enjoyment, because of this, to quote Sloterdijk, more communication means at first, above all, more conflict. Which is why I think what we need today is absolutely not more communication, I should understand you, etc. I think we should begin more modestly with more distance, uh, 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 how should I put it, uh, uh, we need a new code of discretion. We need to learn even to be more foreigners, to, to, to ignore others more. I think this is the great, although the great art, so of course some boring Marxist would have said uh, that, that, oh, this is alienation. It is, but there is something to, there is something to alienation. Okay, let me nonetheless go on so that we, uh, nonetheless I slowly approach the end, which would be that now comes the truly problematic part, namely the following one. Our, our solution to this proximity of the neighbor, how to deal with it, is tolerance today. And if you permit me another quarter of an hour only, because this is now the fundamental part, I think this category should be problematized. The first thing to note, and I refer here in a friendly, but you will see later, polemical way, with the new book by Wendy Brown, uh, Regulating Adversion, or Adversity, I forgot, but it's a good book, although, you see, I have problems. Namely, uh, the first question to ask here is a very naive question. Why do we today, it's a nice sign of times, why do we today formulate as a problem of tolerance phenomena which... 30, 40, 50 years ago, were not perceived as problems of tolerance. 
let's say racism. I made a stupid, simple, primitive experiment. I downloaded from internet all the main texts of Martin Luther King, the great figure of, of course, anti-racism, and I put search like tolerance intolerance, practically absent. I mean, he didn't perceive his struggle against racism as struggle for tolerance. It would have been for him ridiculous to claim I want white people to tolerate blacks. It's ridiculous. In the same way, it would be ridiculous, I hope, for us to say, uh, uh, for, of a for a feminist to say men should tolerate more women. My God, I explode here. I would say every, anything you want. I'm ready to, to give equality to women, but not to tolerate them. Okay, but that's another story. But you got my point. Tolerance is, as Wendy Brown puts it very nicely, tolerance is always an ersatz for political failure. It's a depoliticized politics. What uh, uh, Martin Luther King's point was not tolerance or intolerance, but his problem was inequality, exploitation, injustice, whatever, which demand properly political solution, not intolerance. Intolerance or tolerance means, basically, to simplify it. We can't really do anything, so let's tolerate it. And now let's go a little bit further. Uh, then Brown, Wendy Brown, convincingly, I think, deploys, develops the basic underlying operation. To cut a long story short, what she calls the culturalization of politics, political differences, differences conditioned by political inequality, economic exploitation, and so on, are naturalized, neutralized into cultural differences, into different ways of life. For example, today, not predominantly, sorry, not exclusively, but predominantly. The problem of Mexican workers here is not, are they exploited, stated, is, do we tolerate their way of life, blah, blah, blah. It's, politics is culturalized, which is why I think there is no opposition between Fukuyama and the guy whose name, that's a nice signifying irony, signals in itself one of the main diseases today, Huntington's disease, Huntington, clash of civilizations. I don't think that Clash of Civilization is opposed to this end of history liberal utopia. I claim Clash of Civilizations as Clash of Cultures is precisely politics at the time of end of history, where because allegedly properly economic other problems are now today a fact of uh, rational administration and so on. So the only source of conflicts, of true passionate political conflicts, is reduced to culture. Culture which is then in a way naturalized as something you cannot really change, so we should need to tolerate it. Or, as Huntington put it, it's even a nice formulation, that today, after the Cold War, the iron curtain of ideology has been replaced by the velvet curtain of culture. Now, what is problematic here? First, let me develop, if you just allow me this, the case against, sorry, the case for tolerance and then a critique of it. Like, of course, you are free if you are a woman to go fat and ugly or whatever. But if you do it, you pay a terrible price. You exclude yourself from the sexual market and so on and so on. Like, you know, many choices that we are giving, given are effectively forced choices. Uh, uh, this would be, okay, one level, then there is uh, that, what I already mentioned, culturalization of politics and so on and so on. Uh, 
I accept this as a critique. I also accept, again, this problematic nature of the freedom of choice. How, for example, you remember this old debate of the Amish who protested when multiculturalist liberals claim we just want your children to go to normal English Englishmen, Amish, refer to like this, I was told to non-Amish neighbors. Uh, we want to give them only freedom of choice, which they will learn in our school, the same elementary education as others. But Amish were right to point it out that the moment you do this, you already change them substantially. Like, you know, because the whole attitude towards community changes and so on and so on. In other words, in order to make out of a subject the subject of a freedom of choice, in this liberal sense, you already have to undermine his communal identity and change him into a liberal subject. Then, of course, he may have the freedom of choice, but it's no longer authentic Amish culture. It's just to make a parallel out of authentic Amish identity, which is like, let's make a Chinese identity, eating Chinese food because it is part of your tradition. If you remain Amish, you remain an Amish who, instead of Italian food, pre prefers... I don't know, Chinese restaurant. You know, it's no longer substantial. But now I come to my central concluding point. The fundamental problem with Wendy Brown and critics of this liberal, universal human right and freedom of choice and subject as universal subject is somewhere else. They, I claim, remain caught in a certain too primitive pseudo-Marxist logic of critique of ideology, which is the procedure of denouncing the false universality. You know, this big motive of what appears to be a neutral universal notion then is in reality or priv really privileges a certain culture, strata of people, like this standard topic, you know. Human rights are really not universal human rights. They secretly give preference to, not only to our civilization, but to male, white, and of certain property people in our civilization. You know, the logic is, for example, it can be shown, of course, that it is like this. And it is true that if you read closely the discourse of human rights, it always had this catch. Like, human rights are natural to every man. But then they add, in order, in, insofar as he or she truly is a reasonable human man. And then you start, no? Women, sorry, too passive, too confused, they are out, no? Uh, workers, they have to work too hard, they, they don't have time to really reflect, think, they are out. Children are out, savages are out, criminals are out. You go on, on, no? But I claim two things should be opposed to this. First, this is only one side of the story. Of course, there is a gap between, let's say, an ideological fiction of human, universal human rights and how they truly function. But nonetheless, this very gap has its very positive aspects. It opens us a space for rewriting of it. Of course, they were primordially fully only the rights of white males and so on. But wait a minute, we know the story. First, Mary Wollstonecraft, why not us women? Then, for me, the most noble event of French Revolution which took place in Haiti, Haiti Revolution, immediately. The blacks said, why not us, and so on and so on. So that's my first counter-argument. The second, absolutely crucial one, now I come to my point, is that if you read closely the great idealist tradition of Hegel, and so on, which is fully assumed even by Marx, is that this is only one side of the story, this 
denouncing universality as false universality. We also have the opposite mystification, which is much more interesting, which is something that you perceive or think it's only your particular interest is already a tool for the actualization of universality. In the sense that you see the nicety, it's not that formal universality masks your particular interest. It's the opposite. Your particularity masks, or you are not aware of the universal dimension of what you are doing. I mean, this is what Hegel calls the cunning of reason. You think you follow your narrow interests, you don't see the universal consequences of your acts. This is what, this is in what Marx sees the, the greatness of capitalism. In the, uh, in the sense that uh, you think you are working for your profit, but capitalism has its own universal dimension, is actually universal. Which is why I think it's totally wrong to play this game, uh, capitalism is Eurocentric and so on. It is not. It is universal. In what sense universal? In the strict Hegelian sense. That is to say, and that's crucial. This is, I think, what, what all these uh, uh, post-colonial critics who play this game, oh, they pretend to be universal, but they are not, what they miss. As a capitalist subject, you are universal, not in the sense that you are up in the air universal, but in the sense that in your own individual self-experience, you relate yourself to yourself as universal. To primitive example, which I repeat all the time. Let's say we are in medieval society. You encounter there a knight. You ask him, what are you doing? It would be totally meaningless for a knight to answer, oh, my profession is being a knight or a serf. Why? Because he didn't perceive himself the way we perceive ourselves based on the notion of profession, which means I am in myself an abstract universal individual in the sense of what I am in my particular identity, a professor, this, that, it's basically something contingent, not, as it were, part of my nature. You know, th this corporatist vision of society where we each have our role to play, you look into you, you just have to discover your inner divine vocation. This is, oh, so you need that for Marx through universality, where you yourself experience yourself as in the core of your being universal. In this sense, Capitalism is effectively universal in the sense that whenever it spreads, it from within undermines each culture. I mean, Chinese are now finally discovering it in a very cynical way that, you know, they tried for 30 years, whatever, to destroy Tibetan identity. First, they did it in a primitive way, no? Ruining their, uh, the, 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 all those violence, uh, destroying temples, terrorizing people. It didn't work. Now they discovered with a simple capitalism, it works much better. People are still Tibetan Buddhists, but as all the Buddhists, sorry, all the Tibetans I've met, couple of them told me, but the spirit is going out. Their Buddhism is no longer the substantial way of life. It's allowed as a kind of a private, private almost, so a Buddhist told me very nicely, it's a hobby. You know, like after work, one builds models, the other uh, watches pornography, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, no? I mean, it's socially neutralized. This is the actual universality of capitalism, and I claim we should accept it. There is no liberation outside of it. I think that authentic multiculturalism happens with people like Descartes, 
I think still this is the big manifesto of modernity which we should assert, you know, when Descartes says in the beginning of his, I think, meditations, first, foreign cultures appeared crazy, idiosyncratic, stupid to me, but then I asked myself, what if, when I'm viewed from a foreign, through a foreign gaze, I also must appear to them stupid, idiosyncratic, and so on. This is, I think, the core of modernity. This experience of your own identity, particular identity, as not stupid, you don't have to hate it, but as ultimately something contingent. And I claim, again, that there is no authentic liberation. There is even no feminism, I claim. The only feminism you get outside modernity is this primitive yin-yang feminism, you know, like we should reassert also the feminine aspect or whatever. Of course you are reasserted, but look closely how. They are down the foundation where the men stand, no, and so on. No? So uh, I claim that this now brings me back to the official topic of what I was saying today, the neighbor. I claim that the way to break out of this eternal Levinasian problematic, who neighbor, abyss, otherness, should we respect it or not? This is basically, and tolerate it or not, it's a false problem. We should embrace this radical universality and approach it how? Not as kind of universals, like it's not I am I, you are you, if we are different cultures, but we share some common concerns. It's, I think, in, a, in the form of a struggle. What interests me is that not that I am my culture and you are yours. What interests me is that my culture has some fights in it. Your culture has some fights. What I want to share you is not universal tolerance. I want to share with you our shared intolerances. Like what if my, the only universality that I admit is the universality of struggle, in a way. That's, I think, the presupposition of this cultural solipsism. Oh my God, how do I know that I'm not imposing onto you my universals? You know, we cannot ever be sure every universality is fragile and so on. I would say, yes, but the opposite also. My particular identity also is fragile. That is to say, I am not fully myself and then can I share it with you? It is, I am not myself. There is in the very core of me already, a universality which surpasses me. That's what gives us, that's what gives us some hope, that we are not only more particular than we think, in the sense of even when we spoke about uh, 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 universal things, we give them our personal color. It's the opposite. Even when you think you are immersed only in your culture, you are already universal. Uh, solipsism is false. I'm sad that I don't have time for the last line of thought, which was what kind of ethics fits it. That's what I will have because it's maybe for some of you, not for me. I'm like Stalinist communist made of special stuff. I can go on forever and so on. But what I, no, what I wanted to, I'm really sad. I'm just two minutes to tell you what I, what I wanted to develop to, for the end is to explain against this background of universality and the, the universal ethics is Kantian ethics. Why, in what radical sense, Kantian ethics fits it? That's to say, did you notice something strange? How, okay, Lacan has this formula, have you acted in conformity with your desire? That is to say, do not compromise, betray your desire. 
But how ambiguous this formula is, and even more generally, did you notice how psychoanalysis can be used to justify practically all options that we have today? We have, you have still some stupid anarchist psychoanalyst. Oh, end oppression, liberate it, and everything will be okay. I think they deserve to be shot for another... Why? Because the latest version of it is, and it's not a joke, first I thought it's some trick, no? Like the same trick as, and I was surprised to hear it that it's true. It's really a nasty thing. Maybe some of you know it. When I visited Israel recently, a friend of mine told me something which I thought it's a bad joke. Then he told me, I will convince you, and I met an officer who showed me texts confirming, namely, do you know that IDF, Israel Defense Forces, have a kind of a think tank academy where they develop strategies how to fight uh, Intifada Palestinians? You know where is one of their main, but really main, theoretical references? The Les uh, Gattari uh, Thousand Plateau and Anti-Oedipus. They strictly use these terms, you know, uh, triad space, nomadic subjectivity, space, and so on. It's strange things are... Strange, how to put it? Strange things are uh, are going on here. So the same with psychoanalysis. It's unbelievable. You have psychoanalysts who believe in this sexual revelation. You have liberal hedonist psychoanalysts. All that psychoanalysis teach you is, you know, a little bit of uh, and so on and so on. Then we have uh, conservative psychoanalysts, which claim. The lesson of psychoanalysis today is that we lack symbolic authority, which is why we have the narcissistic illnesses. We should assert some kind of symbolic authority, and so on and so on. We have whatever you want. We have liberal, we have maybe the most cunning, but which I disagree is, and this is how unfortunately Lacan is usually read, what I'm tempted to call immoral ethics, kind of a Nietzschean ethics. It doesn't matter what you do, be authentic, do it really be fully engaged. I claim this one also doesn't. And then, okay, what I wanted to develop is uh, this idea of Kantian ethics as a fully autonomous ethics, as an ethics where, as I repeated all the time, you are not only responsible to do your duty, you are even responsible to determine what is your duty. This is the true ethics of incomplete universe, the true ethics of you are not of, of there is no big other, that you cannot even put onto the big other the responsibility for developing, for telling you this is your duty. But you have to be fully responsible for it, which is why, as I already developed years ago in New York, I think somewhere to conclude with this, which is why I think that at one point Hannah Arendt was wrong. She takes all too seriously that Adolf Eichmann's sheet where he claimed, but I was just a good Kantian, I did my duty. No, a good Kantian cannot ever say this, because the whole strategy of Eichmann was to, as it were, objectivize his duty. What can I do? I obeyed Führer, that was my duty. No, you cannot do this. You should be fully, you are not allowed to, as I put it in my old, one old books already, you cannot use even duty as an excuse to do your duty. I cannot tell you, sorry, I also don't like what I have to do, but it's my duty. No, you have to fully stand behind your duty. No guarantee in the big other. And for reasons that I cannot develop now, I claim that out of this notion of autonomy, I'm here a very traditional German idealist modernist, I claim that a wonderful theory of modern art, especially visual art, can be developed as that, in the sense that that notion of stains that I mentioned before is precisely, how should I put it, art at the level of full subjective autonomy, that you 
even you cannot rely even on the medium. You have to accept full responsibility. Okay, I'm sorry if I was too long, but that's life. Thank you very much. a little bit, maybe uh, now, as I usually say, we have some ten minutes to pretend that there is democracy, no? I mean, <laughs> although, as I already told you, maybe, I think uh, my dream is, you know, you saw Goldfinger, James Bond. You remember that car, no, where you? Like, wouldn't it be nice to have here a plan like this? You ask me a bad question, I push the button, you go up, and then... Okay, but what can we say? Okay, please. Just please be aggressive, in, uh, I mean, because I'm a little bit myopic, and I miss hands, and then I'm accused of sexism, racism, which is all true that I'm dead, but, okay, sorry. All right, uh, two questions. Uh, oh, my God, okay. Uh, 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 I, I want to talk about planning for a second. Um, the, uh, um, the, uh, huh? family fish. Five dollars a glass, yeah. <laughs> comes up with something called Fish's Law, which goes something like tolerance, um, tolerance occurs in inverse proportion to something being at stake. So if something is, is not at stake, it's easily tolerated. But when something is at stake, tolerance disappears. Yeah. So, so the, the argument for tolerance that you're making, which I take to be the argument about tolerance that you're making, I yeah. take to be Lenin's yeah. argument, essentially the same, you know, is, is one that's also embraced by some people on the right, the people who are not afraid of anti-foundationalism, somebody like Stanley Fish. So I'm just kind of wondering what you what you have to say about that. And first, I wouldn't simply... Fish is one of these interesting liberal conservatives who sometimes goes much further and says things which many leftist liberals are not ready to admit. For example, uh, you know how he very intelligently and this, an ordinary right-winger, would not have done it. Don't forget that he very decidedly defended affirmative action, for example. Now, you know, so he is a more complex figure. He is a figure, basically, again, that I like. No wonder that if there is a Marxist here, it's my friend Fred Jameson, who incidentally now is getting a little bit soft. Old, but nonetheless, and incidentally, when they were both for a couple of years at Duke, uh, they became the best friends because Fred told me precisely this he is of course he even he admitted to Fred Jameson he vo always voted Republican and so on but my God he says things which hit the mark and so on and so on but my point was nonetheless more articulate because uh, first of it of course I criticize tolerance but uh, not on behalf of oh we don't tolerate what is uh, Import, uh, what, what is crucial, what is relevant. But my point is even a much stronger case, Hoshte put it, for a very brutal equality. I, I'm more and more turning into a kind of a proto-terrorist, not, not of course in the sense of terrorist attacks, but in the sense of violent imposition of a universal will or whatever. No? And I think that this is for me the problem of tolerance, that it's uh, an ersatz of what we cannot do it, like, and, and that is, so, uh, I think that in this sense, maybe Stanley Fish should be supplemented, that it's not only that we tolerate what is uh, too important, it's too pertinent, it's also that what is 
too strong, precisely too important, too strong, to really politically intervene into it, we then solve it through tolerance. We tolerate things where intervention would be uh, too strong for us today, no? But uh, so, again, I wonder if none, because, you know, as you, as you notice, my position is here more complex. I'm not simply accepting this multiculturalist, which is then, I know, taken over by some right-wingers, because there is a paradox here. I, I'm well aware of this. For example, in France, it's wonderful, okay, disgustingly wonderful, to hear somebody like Le Pen, whose line of thought is not I'm a racist, but I'm a true multiculturalist. All I want is for us French the same things that blacks, Arabs have the right, our cultural identity. And I think there is a moment of truth in it, not in the sense that the French are oppressed, but in the sense that I was always suspicious of this liberal respect for others, which is the inverted form of racism, in what sense? That the more the other is far away from us, the more they are allowed to assert their particular... Like, you know, if you are a Native American... I hate this word, and I read somewhere that even Native Americans are now abandoning it. They like to be the first people or whatever, which is better, you know, because it's, I spoke once with one Native American, so-called, and he told me if he were to choose between Native American and Indian, he prefers Indian. Why? A simple reason. Native American is disgusting. It's like, ah, and we others are cultural Americans. You know what I mean? Like, part of nature. And he said, to be called Indian, at least my name is a monument to white stupidity. No, they thought that they are in India, not better than part of... But, okay. N Native Americans, whatever, they are far away. It's good for them to assert their culture. Now then you come closer, China, Chinese, blacks, still goes, a little bit more careful. Then you get Italians and so on, it's problematic. If you are white English, you are practically accused of fascist, if you say we have to read our blah blah. But this is a lie, I think a typical Hegelian lie in the sense of denounced by Hegel. This apparent self-denial secretly reserves to us whites Nonetheless, the neutral position of universal judge, we can, we can negate our particular identity because we are universal. Which is why the same whites who fanatically support Native American black rights and so on are also always ready to patronizingly teach them and so on and so on. So, uh, again, I think there are enough signs to differentiate me. On the other hand, I don't have any problem learning from intelligent conservatives. Yes, uh, oh my God, help me, help me. Now, this is, these are these sex race problems, and then I will be accused. I think you were the first. You, I think. But then there are two there. Yeah, please. Ah, which part? Yeah. like, oh, I visited Israel, it sounds to me like, oh, I visited uh, Germany at the time of the Third Reich, for me, it sounds in my ears I like see. that. Yeah. And then the other is like, uh, putting the words, what are we saying, uh, well, you know, the idea of that. Well, they might read that, but for me as an intellectual, uh, first of all, Deleuze in his life was one of the uh, uh, intellectuals, French intellectuals, who are outspokenly clear about his position in, in relation to that uh, uh, 
No, first let me make things clear. I'm sorry for that point, but okay, I was this summer there, but let me be absolutely clear what I was doing there, just to make it absolutely <coughs> clear. I went there. First, I was formally invited by the uh, Jerusalem Film Festival to do what? And then immediately problems exploded to present there the film by Udi Aloni, Forgiveness, which definitely is not a Zionist film. He's one of the few of my Jewish friends who is ready to advocate, uh, uh, who is still for uh, uh, one-state solution, none of this separate and so on. And to make a symbolic point, uh, we went first to Ramallah. This was also his point. The premier should be there, only then in Jerusalem, and to make that a point further, and my God, it will sound cheap, but it wasn't cheap, the ticket namely. I insisted that uh, then when I was warned by people there that what really is Jerusalem Film Festival, that is to say a kind of a false, they present themselves as a, how should I put it, an, a, a place of, of peace and understanding in this crazy war zone or whatever, but well, they play a certain politics, so I immediately insisted that I'm not a guest of the festival, that I'm there strictly, personally, as invited by Udi Aloni to propagate his film and have nothing to do, this was announced at the beginning of my talk there and even because of this I rejected all financial things, that's why I make this bad taste remark, it wasn't cheap because I paid myself the trip there and the hotel and everything, everything. I wanted, I wanted to make this absolutely clear there because my position here is that how should I put it? Many people, this is for me the mystery of it, many people noticed how something strange is happening now in the United States, that people who, as to their nature, if I may put it in these stupid terms, should be anti-Semitic are all of a sudden very pro-Semitic. I'm talking about this crazy fundamentalist right. And I think there is only one solution to this enigma, that and I mean this very naively, not as a kind of a hypocrisy, that if there is something great and noble in the Jewish tradition, the present state of Israel is ruining it as fast as possible. If the story goes on for 10, 20 years, Jews will be just another, rather not even too friendly nation and so on. The other thing that I learned in Israel is that uh, you should distrust liberals. I found much more, you know, the liberal story is, oh, oh stupid Jerusalem fundamentalists uh, versus open. Of co first, of course, they can be open because they are Judenfrei in the sense of getting rid of Palestinians. There are almost no Palestinians in Tel Aviv. Of course, they are a little bit more liberal. But I think they are much more hypocritical, Tel Aviv people. No wonder that most of the people who really cared for Palestinians beyond this, you know, the problem, I'm well aware of it, I wrote about it, the problem with uh, Israeli liberals is that they downplay the seriosity of it and present it as a matter, you know, it's just if we were to treat Palestinians a little bit better, in a little bit more considerate way, they are, and the only, almost the only people who were ready to take things more seriously, are interestingly enough 
very, even not only deeply attached to their Jewish tradition, but even deep theologists. For example, I met a woman who appears in another movie by Udi Aloni, a, a wonderful Jewish mystic theologist who is for one state solution very radical and so on and so on. So I hope my position is clear. My only limit, I will tell you, is this one, that, for example, uh, in, let's take Iraq. I, uh, of course, I'm opposed to my God. I wrote a book about it, uh, American intervention, and it's a kind of a divine justice. I mean, how they can, they, can they be so stupid? We see now what is happening. The ultimate objective result of American intervention is that politically, as to political predominance, uh, Iraq is now in the Iranian sphere. Now, if America withdraws, the Shiite majority will be under Iranian, at least political, influence, if not formally. So, in other words, what Bush did is basically deliver Iraq politically to those who are, in other words, my God, the, the, if I were to be a conservative American, caring for American imperialist interests, my comment too, now we will hang Saddam, is, okay, who will now hang Bush? Because what he did, I'm very serious here, is, uh, from a Stalinist view, you can say he must be Iranian agent. The, the result is so catastrophic. The, it's so catastrophic, I mean. And, uh, uh, but... Uh, the price they are paying there, we all know, is, for, for example, Saddam, yes, Iraq. Uh, I don't accept the solution of some of the leftists, which is, they attack Americans, so they must be good. I don't think this is the true problem. The true problem is not Saddam was good, but that for practically all the crimes that he is accused of now, he was 10, 15, 20 years ago fully supported by the United States. For example, it, I start to throw out, because I have a bad memory in the sense of this kind of mean guy who remembers unpleasant things. You know, like the main accusation, ho ho, Saddam uh, used poisonous gas. In my bad memory, I remember clearly about 15, 20 years ago, some non-government organization, together with some third world nations, tried to pass in United Nations a resolution condemning Saddam for the use of poisonous gases against his population. Guess who blocked the resolution? United States. Now, isn't it obscene that now they put him to court for the crimes that he committed not only with tolerance, but with active protection by the United States? This is so, again, here, if you ask me, I, how should I put it, the only thing that I regret, and that was my impression from the visit there to, uh, to Palestina, is that, uh, is that uh, and this is, I think, that the West is, for example, do you know, and again, my source here are big newspapers like Le Monde, I think there was a note even in New York Times, not some so-called loony leftist publications. Did you know that up till 10, 15 years ago, United States and Israel supported Hamas? Why? Because, uh, no, to, to introduce disunity among the Palestinians, no, like anything that hurts Arafat would be good, no? And what is the true dark story is how is the, the, the saddest thing, I think, is the relative, not absolute, disappearance of secular leftist intelligentsia and people in Palestina, which is absolutely a fact of Western 
politics. They considered simply till 10 years ago, I don't know when this to be. So they are really, how to put it, uh, harvesting the seeds of their own. No? So here my position is clear. As to Deleuze, my God, let me be clear. I totally agree with you. I wrote a book for which many Deleuzeans would like to kill. By the way, trying to, for Lacanians, reappropriate Deleuze. Uh, all, my point was only this one. How this incredible, how should I put it, adaptive ability of modern capitalism. My God, you think you are subversive? No. And they can, they can get it. How even, no, I, and what, but what you said, I'm well aware of it, because I know the situation in France where this, but you can tell you all about it, this most disgusting trend now, there is a struggle there which is strictly a struggle between ex-Maoists, Jews usually, among those who remain faithful to their, not Maoists, but at least universal political past, and those who bought the story, political struggle universal, is no longer an item today. So let's move to protecting our Jewish identity. To name the two main participants, uh, Alain Badiou, a still universalist, and Jean-Claude Milner, whom I appreciated till 10, 15 years ago, as the one who wrote that ridiculous book. I talk about it in my Parallax View on uh, the title, is, right? it's uh, like the, the criminal tendencies of modern democratic Europe, something like this. The thesis being that modern Europe is anti-Semitic and uh, pursues Hitler's politics uh, with other means. Uh, so, uh, only this point I wanted to make, in no way, in no way uh, discrediting but you, quite on, on the contrary. Again, my, I think that figures like but you, and, uh, sorry, what I wanted to tell you is that those bad guys, let's call them uh, the traitors of Maoist universalism, it's typical how they draw exactly as you said, the line of distinction between Foucault and Deleuze. Deleuze is for them bad, Foucault good. Why? Because Foucault towards the end so they claim started to support Israel more and so on. Like the, it's, this opposition is clear. I read in a journal, I don't know who wrote it, I think it was some follower of Bernard Henri Levy, a detailed analysis of why the list should be totally rejected. Foucault, Michel Foucault can be redeemed. The interesting thing you learn from there is nonetheless how, because I, I'm here totally for Badiou, because it's typical when this disgusting phenomenon called the new philosophers emerged. Later he distanced, but immediately for the first couple of months, Foucault was seduced by them. He supported them publicly. Deleuze never. From the very beginning he saw. He saw what's the phenomenon there. So again, here, uh, I'm sorry if I put some, how should I put it, wrong, uh, wrong uh, accents or whatever, however it was uh, uh, put, but here, no, no, here I know where things stand. I'm just unfortunately, no, pessimist, it's not the right thing to say, but uh, I think I see so many in the West with others and so on, uh, catastrophic decisions which not only Palestinians, but many others will pay the price for it. That's all. Okay, sorry. For, there were two there, I think. Please. Okay. But stand up and speak loud because I have problems with my ears. I'm sorry. Yeah? Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, two points that yeah. I was going to ask you to reconcile. You mentioned sort of the, uh, the 
Catholicism of tolerance and how we should relate to our neighbor through mm. our mutual experience of intolerance. Yeah. However, I, how does that relate back to this idea of a politics of fear? You know, this negative politics, politics of conflict. And also, how do you sort of engage with people who use language of, you know, of mutual struggle, of mutual intolerance, but in a way that we would think generates intolerance. For instance, you know, since it was a polite topic, um, you know, like, like the gays marching in Jerusalem and how like, the big anecdote was that all the religious leaders of the world came together, you know, because they were like, uh, the gays should be marching and they're not feeling tolerant of us. Uh. Uh, first, when you say out tolerance, fear, and so on, I think this is uh, uh, re- relatively easy to answer. But okay, let's we do first the other one. That is the that, uh, solipsism and so on. No, uh, my uh, what I meant by that solipsism was a phenomenon which kind of uh, embodies for me what is terrifying. Now I know I will sound almost mo- a moral conservative now. I read somewhere, and first I thought it's a bad joke, but again, this is what always surprises you today. You hear things which look a bad joke, then you discover they are true. No, that's, uh, you know what is masturbaton? It is what it says. It started in San Francisco, now it moved to England. Uh, people coming together, hundreds of them, each pays $10, whatever. They masturbate, but each masturbates only him or herself. And it's supposed to be a liberating experience and to make you feel even better. The money goes for some humanitarian cause and so on and so on. And the underlying ideology is the following one, that in the old times the formula of oppression was sex but only for procreation. Now the formula is sex but only with a partner of oppression, sex but only with love. Love is ideological oppressive category. We should do it only for pleasure and at the level of pleasure, as they put it, you yourself or me, I mean, sorry, <laughs> are your own best lover. So we should proudly assert, and I found this so obscene, this, this is where we are, the, like, people masturbating like it is alone, but this false shared loneliness, exactly as but you would have put it, you avoid any traumatic encounter, no otherness, mask with this charity or whatever, this stupid convergence of this is tolerance, this is the way, I will make a crazy conclusion for me, this is the way ideologists of tolerance would like to see. But to go back to your problem of fear, identity and so on, what's, to cut a long story short, what is for me wrong with wrong, okay, what is for me, this, I didn't have time to develop my crazy thought, which will be in the text, of course, which which is that, for me, the opposite of fear is not not to be feared, to enjoy your identity. The opposite of fear is terror for me. I try to, sorry, affirm terror. In the sense of, the solution is not, oh, you don't have to be afraid, you are what you are. The solution is, abandon that what you are afraid to lose. Accept the loss, become universal. You You are afraid to lose your particular identity. My position is not identity politics, it's on the contrary. What if you are so passionately protecting is in itself worthless? Abandon that. I mean, this is why, as a point of madness, I don't mean we should do that, but as an attitude, I refer to that crazy Mao, so what, solar 
minor disturbance in the solar system, whatever. No, I think that, uh, again, so again, the solution is not simply don't fear, be calm, enjoy your life, and so on and so on. The solution is much more radical to, to put it in Lacanian terms, to accept that the big other doesn't exist. No guarantee, no ground. We are in the abyss, even at the level of ecology. The solution is not, don't be afraid, it will not be too bad, somehow the earth will find its balance and we will get a little bit better, we will screw the Chinese and Brazilians to produce less cars or whatever to, I mean, with all my sympathy for rainforest. Did you notice how this hypocritical way we like to always find a third one who is then the cause? Oh my God, Brazilians are cutting, are damaging our lungs and so on while we are doing much worse things, but... The solution is for me the following one. This would be for me the ABC of good radical ecology. To accept that there is no natural balance, there is no way, not, nowhere to return. First, the lesson that I like from biologists like Stephen Jay Gould and so on is that this opposition of nature as some balanced homeostasis and then man disturbs balance with his their her activity. This is purely ideological category of nature. Nature is one big crazy catastrophe. A proof, my God, we live of this catastrophe. Our main source of energy is oil. You know what is oil? It's the result, the remainder of some catastrophe of, of unimaginable proportions. I think that's the first thing to learn about nature. It's something terrifying, how should I put it? Okay, I take this a little bit too serious, maybe for personal reasons, because, you know, like two months ago, somebody brought me a glass of real milk. By this I mean what comes out of a cow immediately. Blech. Whatever. I don't okay, so uh, we have literally nowhere to return. What I like is an ecological analysis which said that if all the human industry were to stop activity production, that the earth is already to such an extent adapted to it, that this would have caused probably a kind of a total, 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 around all the earth, a catastrophe. You know, to accept this crazy openness, ecology, yes, but it doesn't mean there is some base which we ruined through too much industry and we have to return it. There is nowhere to return, no way back. This is, and this for me is then the opposite of fear, that you accept that it's lost, but that you accept this tragic position, because there is no way to return, but of course the first temptation here is then the New Age Gnosticism. No, of course, we should become nomadic virtual beings from one to another. No, we can't do this. We are in this absolute deep shit, deep dead, deadlock, how should I put it? Maybe one more and then I'm somehow getting... Uh, Okay, it's again my, against my Stalinist principles, but I'm getting tired. You're asking about a, uh, for a violent imposition of universal will. You said that's what you're for? Yeah. And I'm trying to distinguish, because you also talked about capitalism yeah. being a kind of universal. Mm -hmm. How is this kind of, how would you distinguish it from like a kind of George Bush, like the uh, corporations and all of that kind of violent imposition of universality. It's a false universality, that one, because more or less... Not yeah, I see your point, yeah. Desire was okay, no, my point is very simple. Yeah, yeah. Everyone. No, my point is a very simple one. My point is that if you look at ecological crisis, other crises, and so on, 
Maybe I'm too naive here. What I think is that the way precisely to beat phenomena like Bush and so on is not through some kind of all these local resistances and so on. I claim in a very naive way that we shouldn't buy this postmodern Poet, poetry, which unfortunately even Tony Negri buys of, you know, decentralized, no longer capitalism from top-down centralized, but emergent properties, cooperation, multiple agents. Not true. What we need is to, is to reassert, how should I call them, big collective decisions. I think without this, we are lost. Now you will say it's not possible. I didn't mean by imposing violent solution. I didn't mean in the sense one nation imposes it on others. What I mean is that we have a struggle, you have a struggle, let's see how we can join our struggles. The, my universality is universality of struggles. It's not the universality of, I claim that my nation has a privileged, like, as, uh, as Bush put it, democracy is God's. God's gift to humanity, but then the sub-premise, sub America is, has the copyright to distribute the, this divine present or whatever. No? So uh, all I'm saying again is that I don't believe in this poetry of bad center, empire versus marginal sites of resistance, resistance here and there. I sincerely believe that for ecological crisis, for other problems that, again, we will need uh, to reassert more than ever. Because, because are we aware uh, with these big collective decisions? Because are we aware that even capitalism is moving in this direction? I mean, it's simply not true, this mantra that we hear, the time of the state is over and so on, now there are corporations or what. I claim that not only in the United States, I don't think at any point in history state mechanisms were as strong as they are. Just look in the United States today. All this spending for military spending and others, this is state-mediated spending. I came in with interventions in the economy. Then with, for example, which is why I think California is a model. In what sense? Not only in the cynical sense, because a wonderful thing happened to me. You remember two years ago, they had some problems with electricity because of a fast privatization. They had uh, cuts of electricity, and uh, it was a poetic element. I was there, and then, you know, this disgusting, patronizing understanding, they asked me, could you tell us from your experience, how was it to live in this totalitarian communist society? No, uh, they got it. I said... No, when I want to remind my son how it was, I bring him to California, because we also had electricity shortcuts, no, you have to, to remind me how it was. No, but what I want to say is that no wonder some people in L.A. area or Orange County refer to it as Orange County People's Republic or what, no? And why? Because if you look at it, they first, water, to survive there, you need water allocation. You have to bribe people, it's state-mediated. Then, so much of the industry is war and so on, state contracts. I mean, California is, I think, the closest you come to some kind of a crazy, as it may sound, people's republic, like socialist economy. And uh, uh, so what I'm saying is that I don't buy this stupidity, the, the state, uh, this, it's so in ecology with all regulations and so on. I don't think ever in the history of capitalism the state played such a role today with all these ecological 
uh, aspects need for, need for environment, infrastructure, and all that. I mean, this, the, the, this, the role of state is so crucial. So again, I simply don't buy this story, you know, interaction of society, decentralized, who cares about the state. More than ever, the state is crucial. We literally cannot survive. I mean, you can imagine still in the 19th century, the state disappears, somehow local communities would survive. Today, you cannot imagine it even. So again, all I'm saying is that, uh, is that we should just, how should I put it, accept the struggle at that level. What I don't buy is, how should I put it, no, this alternate modernity dream. No? Like, now I will say something horrible for some leftists. With all my critique, and I'm more critical than ever of the United States, I'm very sorry to tell you, but if I were to choose American or Chinese model of capitalism, maybe I would choose American, nonetheless. Because you know, the, what is China today? It's something very strange. It's basically a communist country where the main role of the Communist Party is to totally oppress the working class to make the field clear for unbridled capitalism. The best place to be today, if you want to be the most ruthless capitalist, is China, on the condition that you don't mess with politics, of course. No? Forget about those Falun Gong sects and so on. No, this is because they didn't want to be controlled by state. Today, China turned totally pro-religious. They're openly saying, because they know that in this explosive capitalist development, you, there are dangers of social disintegration, and you need religion or some forms of traditional community spirit to prevent social explosion, which is why they fully, religions are literally, sincerely, it's not just a dark strategic tactic communist plot, they support religions. No, the problem is two things uh, an intellectual from China told me. I hate, told me, you can criticize Marx, whatever, even communism as such in academia, more or less. Okay, maybe he rhetorically exaggerated, but nonetheless, he told me, but First, don't mess with ecology too much. You can do a little bit. For example, they told me that there are already big problems with that Yangtze or what Yellow River Dam, no? That uh, first, it's already leaking, no? <laughs> Point two, they made, because they didn't uh, take into account some kind of moon, moon power of attraction, whatever, uh, it didn't simply raise, the, it led, it, uh, the level of water was raised at a different, how should I put it, uh, uh, in a different angle, so that, to cut a long story short, at one side they emptied a city, but which didn't go underwater on the other side, a city which was supposed to, like, it's chaotic, so you don't mess with that. And finally, the ultimate fear, it's nice irony for a communist country, uh, to allow any kind of independent trade unions or whatever, because, you know, the conditions are terrifying of the workers' exploitation. People die. For example, are you aware, I read this, these are official data, that in China there are every year around 2,000 disturbances. By disturbances they mean something very precise. They mean local unrests which are so strong that police cannot deal with them that army had to intervene. So it's a traumatic situation. So that's what I'm saying. Okay, okay, we criticize United States politics, I totally agree. But let's not forget the problem is capitalism. Just to conclude with another nice joke, which nonetheless I like, a friend of mine was recently in China and visited the Philosophy Institute. You know, one of these four million anonymous cities, which are a dozen in China that we don't know that even exist. Okay, they invited Philosophy Institute, big building, four stores, and so on. But 
below they still had a uh, this kind of an old socialist communist tradition, you know, a panneau uh, play board where they announced the results, no? And he discovered, my friend, they still have a five-year plan in philosophy, you know? I love this idea, like, this year we develop this and that, and now this, I imagine then, what a wonderful would have been to have a conversation with a Chinese philosopher, researcher there, and you ask him a simple question, like, does this table, with all its qualities, exist independently of my perception? He would say, I'm sorry, this is part of the plan for 2008, you know, we haven't yet, like, this bureaucratic, there is something liberating in this idea, I think, to, to rely on bureaucracy. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit, so maybe we should call it a day, but history repeats itself, and so on, maybe we meet again.